I got to say, as far as stories go, this is not really the way that you would expect the book to end. That's part of why I like it. So let me go ahead and read to you the first three verses, and we'll get to work. On that day, they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite did ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing, and as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So the good news in this passage at this point is that they are still reading the Bible. The bad news in this passage at this point is they are already in a heap of trouble. Because what has happened somewhere between the page that you had last week and the page that you have this week is that the children of Israel have gone from rah, rah, let's go God to the cat is away and the mice have begun to play. Because somewhere between chapter 12 and chapter 13, Nehemiah has gone back to the place that he came from when he came to Jerusalem. If you recall this early in the book, <coughs> he told Artaxerxes, hey, I need to go away for a while, but I will come back. And he has honored his word, and he has gone back to uh, where Artaxerxes was to fulfill his job. And while he's been gone, the people have walked away from their covenant promises in chapter 12, and they have begun to intermingle and intermarry with these foreign nations, and it has caused them all kinds of trouble. We'll get more detail about that in just a bit. But it certainly gets worse before it gets better. Look at verse 4. Now before this, <coughs> Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, the wine, the oil, who were given to the commandment by the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and contributions of the priests. So, in addition to the intermingling and intermarrying, they have sunk to the low of one of the priests who was in charge of the house of God and the worship of God, of actually bringing in one of Nehemiah's greatest enemies and detractors and setting him up in the temple for a place to live. So to use the joking language that I used earlier in the book, Tobiah was the penguin figure. There was Sanballat, the joker, Tobiah is the penguin, and here one of the priests who was in charge of the bat cave has moved the penguin into the bat cave and exchanged the worship of God for running a dirty Motel 6. Verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So here, Nehemiah <coughs> tells us exactly what he's been up to. And it says, After some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Now, that word evil is important for several reasons. First, because this is a sacred space that was only for priests and Levites. Clearly, Tobiah didn't meet those requirements. Second, this was one of his chief enemies. To say that this would have been an affront to the holiness of God is an understatement. And finally, this particular individual had been committed to their destruction, and now he's invited in in this way. 
So to call it evil is exactly right. Verse 8, Nehemiah says, And I was <coughs> very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So obviously Nehemiah is very upset, and he begins <coughs> to make for us a pattern that we're going to see throughout the book where he faces conflict head on, he chases away the evil within it, and he replaces it with a righteous alternative. So for the note takers out there, you want to pay attention to that. He faces it, he chases it, and he replaces it. That's part of the application for us in this passage. It says, I also found out that the portion of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So last week we saw him remind the people, listen, you need to be investing in the people that invest in you spiritually, and clearly they had abandoned that. And because of that, those people had to quit their uh, worship-leading jobs and had gone back to doing agrarian work uh, just to provide for their families. So clearly, just like last week, as God, God's people, we need to invest in God's ministry, and they should have done it then, and it had consequences, and we should do it now and avoid those consequences as well. Verse 11, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations, and then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Matani, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds, <coughs> for I have done uh, that I have done in the house of my God for his service. So when Nehemiah asked that God would remember him there, it's not because he thinks God is going to forget him. It's not that he thinks God has forgotten him already. This is one of those Old Testament recitations in which he is asking God to honor his covenant, which of course he will. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on the donkeys, and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And if you have a copy of the ESV, you see that that ends with an exclamation mark. And the point that he's trying to make here <coughs> is that this is particularly scandalous. Not only are they violating one of the Ten Commandments, they're not doing it off in some faraway corner. They're doing it right here in the city of God itself. And so he's highlighting this particular type of evil. Verse 17, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you were doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not God bring all this disaster on us <coughs> and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And so again, he is calling them to account for their great evil, 
and he is making a connection with the forefathers, and he's saying, listen, we should have learned by this, by now, learned from the poor example that we had in the past by now. Your fathers did it, now we're doing it, we got to cut this out. <coughs> as soon as it began to grow dark in the, at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, verse 19, I commanded that the doors <coughs> should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened again until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And the merchants and sellers and all kinds of wares <coughs> lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I, learned, but I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Now, let's stop and talk about this here. Because it's about to get very real here for Nehemiah and his uh, behavioral responses. Uh, before, he just kind of gave a warning. Now he is about to choose violence. And he does in just a few uh, verses. <clears throat> and I think the way we need to see this is a couple of different ways. I think we need to see it in the sense of <clears throat> what Jesus did with cleansing the temple. Nehemiah is not Jesus, but clearly he is operating in the same kind of sphere. This is righteous anger. He's not just popping off because somebody said something that he didn't like when he was pulling his camel in. This is defense of <coughs> the holiness and the worship of God. And so he is acting in that way, and we need to see it as such. And so when you begin to see these other things that happen here, I just want to mention the next few to you. Verse 22, commands the Levites <coughs> that they should purify themselves uh, to remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. He prays another one of those recitation prayers. And then particularly when he gets into 23 and following, and he really leans on these people for intermarriage, he is acting in the stead of God as the spokesman of God for the glory of God toward the worship of God. Because throughout all this point, it, it, God is not a racist. He's not saying you can't get together with these people because they are from another country. The reason why he is saying this and the reason why is he is taking such action through Nehemiah is because when these people would intermarry, it would immediately lead to idolatry. And so the point of Israel uh, was that God had called them out Tiding little insignificant nation, they were to be his people for his glory, a light unto the nations, different from all the other nations. And when they begin to marry these other people, verse 24 tells you what happens. Look at this. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. It was a neighboring, uh, a neighboring uh, pagan area. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of the people. That is the quintessential example of what was wrong with this that they were forsaking God by marrying these pagan people and bringing in their gods. So that's the context for verse 25 when uh, Nehemiah goes full send on the violence. Look at this. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Okay? So I think this goes without saying, but heck, in 2022, I'm not sure anything does. Uh, please don't call me this week and say that you had a conversation with a coworker, and you found out they didn't read their Bible, and so you went Nehemiah and cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair. 
I can tell you for certain that is not God's will for your life this week. And, but I do think the point that Nehemiah is making here of sin really matters, God is really holy, the worship of God is not to be trifled with, that principle 100% applies. And that is the same thing that you see with Jesus cleaning out the temple in Matthew 21. Because what was the deal there? They had turned the house of God (coughs) into a den of robbers, and Jesus had to clean it up. And so in response, look at the next verse here. And I made them take an oath (coughs) in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take uh, take their daughters for your sons, or for yourself. So again, the same pattern that he has run throughout this entire passage that I do think is a help to us. Face the conflict, chase the evil, and replace it with righteousness. He does this time and time again. Now, <coughs> 26 here, he uses uh, a fantastic historical example, which if you were with us last last year, I think it was last year, uh, might have been 2020, it all runs together for me now, but we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which has turned out to be one of the favorite books that I've ever preached, because you, you hear at the end of Solomon's life the wisdom that he has gained and the regret that he has for falling into the exact unrighteousness that Nehemiah is calling out here and that he used his, him as an example of here. Look at 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So, I think the application... For us, with this part of the text, is exactly the same as that would have been for them. Because what he's saying to them is, listen, Solomon was the most special king in this regard. He was the wisest man in the world, and he did exactly what you guys are doing, and look what happened. Look how it turned out. So, do you think you're smarter than Solomon? Do you think you're wiser than Solomon? Do you think you can play with fire and not get burned? That's what he's saying. And the, the rhetorical answer is, of course not. So if Solomon couldn't do this, then we can't do this. And so I think the wisdom for us at this point would be to take a step back and go, hmm, is there any particular area in my life where I am playing with proverbial fire? And I can already tell you, it's not going to come through intermarriage of foreign people bringing in their foreign gods. It's going to come in through some other door. And one of the the great graces of living in this area that we live in, it's very well-resourced, not per capita as much need, though there is intense need in Williamson County, it, it, it insulates us from a lot of things, but it's also dangerous because it can lull us into simply pursuing the American dream like everybody else, not giving much thought to the poor or the people that have needs that, that might not be financial, and then just kind of lulling us along into ultimately wasting our lives. We don't want to do that. 
And so in some ways, this idolatry is easy to spot. But I wonder if our idolatry might be a little less easy to spot. And that's only one example. Because what did John Calvin teach us? The heart is an idol factory that never ceases its work. So money is just one idol. We can make family an idol. We can make work an idol. We can make providing for our family an idol. We can, I mean, you name it, and we can turn it into an object of worship. And so a passage like this gives us an opportunity to take a little step back and go, hmm, if Solomon fumbled the football on this, and the children of Israel, who had just seen God do one of the greatest miracles in all the Old Testament, they had just seen it. They were a part of it. Their very hands stacked the blocks that God used in this miraculous way. And just a short period of time later, here they are right back at it. I think it is a place where we could take a step back and go, where might that be going on in my life? And I don't say that in any way to try to put guilt on people. That's not going to help you anyway. But I do say that in hopes of putting grace on people. Because if you want to get help, you got to know there's a problem first. And I think this passage gives us an opportunity. Maybe you'll see some of it now, even while we're hearing this, but maybe you'll see some of it later when you talk about it over lunch or in community group or throughout the week or whatever. <coughs> but a passage like this <coughs> reminds us of our deep and abiding need for the grace of God. <coughs> so here in the last little bit of this passage, what does Nehemiah do? He cleanses the temple again. He puts the right people in place. Uh, <coughs> and then he closes the passage by saying, Remember me, O God, for my good. And as we think about that, I, I really want to kind of draw this passage to a close by, by kind of reiterating what we learned and then and giving us one more little shaft of application that I think will help us. On a practical sense, his pattern for dealing with this conflict, it, it really is helpful. Face, chase, replace. In this room... All of us kind of have a different default setting when it comes to conflict. Some, uh, and you can blame this on your Enneagram number if you want to or not. It doesn't matter. It's just true. Some people in here are like, I don't like conflict. I actually heard conflict two houses over, and so I scheduled a vacation so that I could not be nearby. We have some of those people. Uh, other people are like, you know what? That guy's wrong, and I cannot wait until I can get into a conflict to tell him how wrong it is. Okay? So both of those poles exist in here, and then most of us fall somewhere in between. <coughs> but conflict is unavoidable, and we got to face it. And sometimes we have to have hard conversations, and it just is what it is. And in those moments, by the grace of God, with the Word of God in our hearts, and the Spirit of God directing our conversation, we need to do the best we can with it. And then when we do find evil in our own lives, uh, you know, parents, You've got kids at your feet in the lives of your children. Um, you don't have to teach them to be mean. They come out knowing that, by the way. Uh, we we got we to deal with that. But then the goal is to replace it with things that are Godward and things that are good and, and going in the right direction. So in dealing with your conflict this week, 
I think if Nehemiah, to, to use this proverbial example here, if he had just said, hey, y'all cut it out, and he cleaned out the temple and he didn't put the right stuff back in there, that would not have been near as effective. You have to replace it with something else. And so as you see by the Spirit this week, these, you know, we get into the new year, it's a great time to talk about this, some old habits that you want to break, you got to replace them with new habits or you're going to be right back in the same place. So think about that as you deal with conflict in yourself and in others. Now, second thing that I want to reiterate here, and I really do mean this, if it can happen to the Israelites and it can happen to Solomon, it can happen to us. So whatever it is that comes to mind when you're like, man, I wonder if I'm in the deep weeds on this, the, the Lord is trying to get your attention today. Pay attention to that. Or if you hear this and you know, hey, I am absolutely in the deep weeds about this. I don't even have to think about it. Listen, the Lord is trying to get your attention. Pay attention to it. And so that drives us to the final and perhaps most important part of this is how does a passage like this get us to Jesus? Well, the one part that I already offered there, it's very obvious. You cannot read this passage and see Nehemiah clean out the temple and not see Jesus cleaning out the temple. You just can't. It's a clear pointer. But I think beyond that, when I look at this and I look at this misbehavior of the Israelites, I see Jesus as the true and better Israel. Because in every single way that these people failed, they couldn't keep the promises. As soon as their shepherd left, they did exactly the wrong thing. Jesus succeeded in every one of those areas. He kept every single promise of God because He was God. In every way that they failed, He was perfect. And because of His perfection, we can go to Him with all of our imperfection. So I think in the same way that this passage illuminates our sin and how we can fall into these same ruts, man, it also illuminates a clear path to the cross, and a clear path to the grace of God for us. Because if you hear this and go, man, I am such a screw-up, you're not hearing it. That's only part of the story. But if you hear this and go, I'm such a screw-up, but I am so thankful that there is one who never screwed up, and that one who never screwed up died for my screw-ups, and now he welcomes me and beckons me, and he says he will take me just as I am to come and to bring my sin, and that he will forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Now you're starting to hear it. And then he wants to give you practical instruction like how to deal with conflict and, and, and how to live in this world that we're in. Now you're starting to hear it. And so this passage ultimately leads us to Christ. It shows us our need for Him. It shows us the immense blessing that He is. And it puts us on a path toward joy and humility and kindness and great usefulness for the glory of God, even in a year like 2022. So let me close with this question. Do you hear this passage? 
Do you hear it? Do you hear all that it's saying? Conviction and kindness. Practical instruction and the most practical path to Jesus. I hope you do. Because by the grace of God, if we do, this week's going to be different. Tomorrow is going to have a little more gospel light in it than it has today. So I want to end this message by praying for us, and then we'll respond with the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, a passage like this is both simultaneously heavy and freeing. And so, Lord, I pray for that kind of work in our hearts right now. We need to see where we are like these Israelites and we have fallen down on the job. But we also need to see how you are the true and better Israelites that never fell down on your job. And that because of that, you will help us in what you've called us to do. So Lord, I pray for both conviction and just a sense of gospel overwhelm. And Lord, I pray is that we I pray that as we turn our attention now to your table, that you would use this symbol to help drive that point home even more. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.